Professor Timothy Caulfield is a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy, a professor at the Faculty of Law and School of Public Health, and a Research Director of the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. However, he is most well-known for being a misinformation debunker, having written several best-selling books, including The Cure for Everything, The Vaccination Picture, The Science of Celebrity, Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything?, and most recently, Relax, a guide to everyday health decisions with more facts and less worry. He is also the host and co-producer of the award-winning documentary TV show, A User's Guide to Cheating Death, which aired in over 60 countries and was on Netflix. We start off by answering the question, are birds real? And the answer may surprise you. It surprised me, really. We also talked about the lure of celebrity misinformation, why it's critical that we join the fight against misinformation, leveraging the power of cognitive bias to disseminate correct information, and why he would not have gone on the Dr. Oz show. Over the past several years, Caulfield has been involved in a variety of interdisciplinary research endeavors that have allowed him to publish more than 350 articles and book chapters. His research focuses on topics like stem cells, genetics, research ethics, and the public representations of science and health policy issues. The recipient of numerous academic and writing awards, Caulfield is also a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and the Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. This was a big deal that he agreed to be on the show, and I'm sure you all are going to enjoy it. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. And now a word from this week's sponsor, Laurel Road. Since I had my son, paying down my med school debt has become my top priority. I remember holding him in my arms for the first time, looking into his beautiful little face, and just wanting the best future for him. With the Laurel Road Student Loan Cashback Card, my regular purchases earn me 2% cashback when I use it to pay down my student loans, which helps me reach my goals faster and plan for my family's future. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctor checking for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA member FDIC. Professor Timothy Caulfield, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Uh, Brad, thanks for having me on. So first question is a real, a real zinger. Are birds real? Uh, obviously, they are not. Um, yes. This is, has been, become clear very recently that there is a government plot to replace the birds, uh, and that plot has been successful. And so most of the birds that you now see uh, flying around are actually cameras, uh, and they're monitoring our behavior uh, and our activities, and they're feeding it back to a central hub that allows them to make a whole host of nefarious uh, plans. And Brad, unfortunately, this has been a, a very successful undertaking. So there are no real birds left. They are all there for uh, to monitor us. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's some dispute about that. I think the details of how many actual birds are left is still being debated. Uh, but the bulk of them, the bulk of them are monitoring uh, our, our daily lives for, you know, to, to satisfy a broader agenda uh, that, look, I'm not behind. The fact that you're able to say that with no hemming and hawing so cogently and a completely straight face is 
is really impressive. That is that is really impressive. Um, and it really tied into one of the other questions that wasn't also a question in jest, which is, have you ever questioned the nature of your own reality, which is a reference to Westworld where they replace the humans with robots and they're there to monitor. And it's, so uh, you really you really covered a lot of ground there. Well, the I, the Arberg's real thing is I, I absolutely love it. You know, I love those kinds of performance art and that's exactly what it is. Uh, and I don't know if you've been following it. I've been following it quite quite closely. And, you know, I think the guy does a fantastic job because he does it with a straight face. I don't know if you've seen him been interviewed. He, he, he doesn't let up. Uh, he holds it. And there's been other terrific performance art endeavors like that. There's one called Celebrity Meat that I use in my class all the time. And it's the idea that you take a cell from a, a celebrity and then you use stem cell technology, right, to grow meat from that celebrity sample and then you mix it in with other spices and whatnot so you get you know a spicy kanye west sausage or something like that uh and it looks completely real and the individual who's doing this uh again claims it's real but i love it because it really forces these kinds of conversations okay i was not in on the joke i didn't realize that was performance art and satire i thought they were really people out there like flat earthers thinking that birds were not real yeah, so the the birds uh, aren't real um, is a shtick that a guy, you know, he's clearly doing it to highlight how absurd some of these conspiracy theories are. And and the fact that we have to wonder whether it's performance art speaks to how successful this <laughs> his performance art is. I mean, how much more absurd is that conspiracy theory than Pizzagate? Uh, how much more absurd is that conspiracy theory than, you know, we didn't go to the moon and and on and on and on. So I think it's a it's a very clever strategy to to really force us to to think about the nature of conspiracy theories. Well, he got me. He got me. Not because I didn't think birds. Well, it, it did make me question whether there were some. OK, so how did you go from being a health policy law professor to this misinformation crusader? Um, it really pretty quickly out of the academic gate, you know, which I finished graduate school, um, I jumped into doing very interdisciplinary science policy work. And so looking at what kind of information is used to inform health policy. And you know this, <laughs> very quickly you realize often the science is less than ideal and and then you also start to recognize that there are a lot of cultural and social forces that are shaping the evidence that is used to inform health and science policy, whether you're talking about clinical practice guidelines or whether you're talking about, say, stem cell policy or whether you're talking about patent policy. Regardless, the, there are all these forces that shape the evidence that we use. And, and I'm I, right out of the gate. So we're talking 25, 30 years ago. This was my passion. And that kind of evolved into looking at more and more about the role of pop culture and how science is represented in the public sphere. And I've been so, so fortunate, Brad, to have these fantastic interdisciplinary teams around because I do not have the methodological chops to do a lot of the stuff that I like to do. So I get, you know, we have these fantastic teams uh, that we put together to do this to do this work. And uh, so that that was the evolution. You know, that was the evolution. And then, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, it really has become... Uh, about misinformation and you know bunk therapies and unproven therapies and some of that uh, some of my work is often uh, I've called a debunker and all that but a lot of my research and involves 
uh, more classic biomedicine, like stem cell research, like genomic research, where I look at, you know, the hype that surrounds those technologies and how those technologies are represented in the public sphere and how that influences the decisions we make about those technologies. And so uh, I, I, I'm still passionate about it. I still love it. And I'm still fascinated by it. And holy cow, Brad, I never would have guessed in a million years how, you know, I when I first started doing this research, it was like, ah, oh, Tim, that's kind of a fun area to do research. It was kind of fringy, you know, and kind of like, holy cow, has it ever become a core issue? I mean, I really think battling misinformation has become one of the defining defining issues of our time. So what what do you think of the responsibility of the physician is, right? Like, because this is primarily a physician audience. And so we try to treat the patient in front of us, right? But like, we're also authority figures. So this is kind of a two-part question. What is our role and what is our responsibility to the yeah. public in pointing out disinformation or, or rather just spreading information? So I have some pretty strong, <laughs> strong opinions about this. I, I, I think that physicians play a very important role for a whole bunch of reasons. First of all, we know, we know, you know, yes, trust has eroded. Yes, there are a lot of, you know, other forces out there that are shaping how the public thinks about healthcare providers, but they remain one of the most trusted voices. So how they deal with misinformation matters. So look, we know misinformation is killing people. We know it's killing people. And we know that healthcare providers from primary care physicians to specialists, they can make a difference, right? They can make a difference in the clinical setting and they can make a difference in the broader public sphere. We know that. Um, there's a lot of research that talks about, uh, about how effective their role can be in, in this area. Uh, and I also think they have both a moral responsibility to do something, um, you know, whether you're talking about looking at through the lens of, you know, ethics guidelines, you know, their, their, their obligations as a professional or even legal <laughs> obligations in the context of standard of care and consent. Um, so I think that their role is significant. And I also think there's that that professional obligation. So the licensing bodies, right? Um, I think they need to do more to make sure they monitor what their members are saying. And there's been this really fascinating um, discussion uh, around attention between freedom of expression and their, their obligations as physicians. And I think that that unfortunately has been a very effective rhetorical trick used by those pushing misinformation to destabilize the efforts by the licensing boards to monitor their members. Because clearly physicians have a legal obligation to the public that they have to uphold. I mean, this is why the licensing boards exist, right? This is why they exist, is to protect the public. And having a, an MD, and by the way, I, I'm surrounded by MDs in my, in my life. My wife is an MD, my son is an MD, my sister-in-law is an MD, my brother-in-law is an MD. Um, that's a, that is a privilege. That's a privilege. And with that privilege comes, uh, you, get, you know this so well, all your listeners know, know this so well, come, it's, comes obligations. And one of those obligations is to ensure that you're not spreading misinformation that hurts not only your patients, but hurts, hurts the public. So uh, what you're saying is with great power comes great responsibility. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. 
what about the slippery slope argument, right? So if we're going after people for spreading what they believe to be is true and turns out that the governing body disagrees with because we think it's misinformation, how do we decide where the line is, where we're going to come down and you know, take away your board certification or not allow you to practice medicine in, the, in this state anymore? So these governing bodies, how do they fight against the slippery slope argument? Well, I, I think that's a great question. And I, and I do think um, that we are going to have ongoing debates and we should have these debates about what is misinformation, right? What is disinformation? What is misinformation? We need to have, have those discussions. But I think it's really important to highlight, you know, at the top that the individuals that have been sanctioned or even highlighted by the licensing boards are clearly pushing misinformation. So this has been another kind of rhetorical trick that has been used, a slippery slope argument, to, you know, again, to make licensing boards hesitate and, and to make this about freedom of expression. Because and, and they also, you know, they've rolled out, you know, phrases like I'm being silenced or um it, it's it's a cancel culture. Uh when in reality, very, 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 very few physicians have actually been sanctioned, have been silenced in any single way. And those that have, especially in Canada and in the United States, were clearly pushing misinformation. You know, these this isn't stuff on the margins. Like people weren't debating when should you get your booster and or how much immunity do you actually get from Omicron? Those aren't the kind of discussions that we're having here. We're ha they this is stuff that was clearly misinformation about the efficacy of the vaccines, about things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. This wasn't stuff on the margins. This was stuff that was clearly problematic. And so that debate, despite how 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 it's risen sort of in, in the popular discourse around this topic, is a little bit of a red herring because we're, we're not there yet. You know, we're really talking about trying to stop healthcare providers from spreading stuff that is clearly misinformation and that that is clearly harmful. Having said that, I think your your question off the top is important. You know how we define that, and however we do it, we should do it transparently, and we should do it in a way that all the players involved know what we're talking about and understand how we arrived at that conclusion. But the interesting thing is, you know, this there's standards of care. There's standards of care when you're talking about clinical care, and there can be standards of care when you're talking about communication. You know, we make these decisions, these kinds of margins decisions you know where where is the line decisions all the time in in healthcare and this i think going forward is going to be just another area where we're always wrestling with where the line resides and i think one of the words that you used is misinformation that is harmful i think that could be a a, a line right are you spreading informa misinformation that is clearly harmful to the public so now you are a danger to the public that seems like you'd be able to, for the most egregious people, you'd be able to draw that line pretty clearly. I think so. And certainly for all the players that we've been talking about over the past, you know, two and a half years, right? I think that that, that definition alone, you know, it's scientifically inaccurate, falls outside the body of evidence and, and is clearly harmful. I think that that would apply to all the players we're talking about now. But what is interesting, Brad, is, is you know, I'm, I, I think that because people will say, oh, what do you care if they offer homeopathy? Or, you know, Tim, why do you care if they're doing Reiki? Or, you know, pushing magical thinking can be harmful too, right? Just tolerating pseudoscience. Now, whether it's really going to trigger a sanction is one thing, but I don't think we should tolerate it uh, as a profession, um, as a scientific community. And we really have tolerated it, I think, for a really long time. And I think we've got to stop 
stop doing that because we've seen what happens when we kind of embrace magical thinking. Yeah, it, it seems like um, that would be a, a good way to maybe start a conversation with your patients too. And I like that phrase too, magical thinking, because it, it it's, it's a way to, it really highlights just how outlandish these things are where people don't think of them. The public doesn't think of them that way, right? They don't think of Reiki as being magical. They think there's maybe some real stuff happening, but when you use that term, it really, I think, highlights to the patient just how far afield they've gone. Oh, yes. Okay. Sounds like you're practicing magic there. And yeah. uh, although you're that right, might really Brad. damage the relationship. Yeah, I think I think you're right because I mean, if you use Reiki as an example, think about what we're we're suggesting. We're suggesting there's a a life force energy that runs through your body that has a measurable impact that you can control with your hands without touching, right? That that's magic, right? That's magic. It you know doesn't wouldn't correspond to any any sort of known scientific principles. Um, and I think it's really important to highlight, Brad, it, you know, I've been studying this area for decades and there has been a shift because in the past, things like Reiki and some other kinds of modalities are often presented almost as a spiritual exercise, right? You know, that that it's sort of a, a philosophy almost of health. That's, it's, the shift is, has, a shift has occurred where now they're presented as if they're based on scientific principles, right? So it's quantum physics, or they talk about waveforms, or or our bioenergy, and and they use this terminology, and they do that to legitimize it because they want the best of both worlds. They want the 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 credibility that comes with science, but they also want to have the looseness that comes with it being an alternative therapy. And don't hold me to those standards. You can't have it both ways. But the good news is it's kind of made my job easier because if it really, if you're really talking about a philosophy or a spiritual approach to health, that's a really interesting, that's almost a different question, right? You know, does that belong in our healthcare system? And, you know, I, like I, that's religion. an interesting question, right? You know, you don't want to question somebody's religion, right? You don't want to, you don't, you don't want to go there as a physician, but if they're, if you're saying, if they're involving science, now we have a, now we have an avenue to say, mm, that's not how quantum mechanics works. Actually. Exactly right. Yeah, so you're, you're using this terminology, yeah you're going to be held to the standard of science. And, and yeah. if we're going to use that standard, it doesn't pass. Well, I just want to, for the listeners out there, for those who aren't watching on YouTube, I just want to highlight the fact that he was describing Reiki and it really sounded like he was describing the force while wearing an X-Wing <laughs> fighter t-shirt. So just for those I'm that didn't hypocrite. have the visual. I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> so some of these ideas out there though are being pushed by celebrities which is you know a lot of a lot of what you do a lot of what you cover and, and write and speak about um so so why is it that people listen to this preposterously ridiculous health advice from a uh, from a celebrity that is ultimately magical thinking but not me it's a fascinating question isn't it and and look we have you know, I think it's fair to say we have a lot of evidence and it's hard to study this well. A lot of the, a lot of the work I do, you know, I'm always talking about, we got to use the best available evidence and a lot of the phenomenon I'm interested in, it's hard to study it well. It'll be observational research, correlation research. So, you know, with that big caveat, um, we have a pretty robust body of evidence that tells us that celebrity 
celebrity endorsements, celebrity, um, you know, commentary does have an impact. It really does have a measurable impact. And, and I'll give you a couple of, of examples in a moment. And it is an interesting question because if we went out on the street and we interviewed a thousand people and we asked them, do you trust celebrities? Almost everyone's going to say no, right? Um, I bet all your patients, they would say no. But despite that, we know that they have an impact. Uh, so what's going on there? So I don't really think it's that they trust them. It's a couple things. One is that it's just the megaphone, right? I mean, the mere fact that they have this megaphone and and they can put these ideas out into the ether, that matters, right? Um, and a good example of that is the 5G um, COVID myth, you know, this conspiracy, this idea that 5G technology caused COVID, it was percolating it, uh, uh, in con the conspiracy world for a while. And then when people like Woody Harrelson started talking about it, it, it took off. And MIA, the singer MIA was another individual. People don't think that Woody Harrelson is a physicist, but he just was able to put it out there. And, and then the availability bias comes into play because you can recall it more quickly because it came from Woody Harrelson. The other thing is, is I, I think the the anecdote, the testimonial aspect of of celebrity endorsements or you know celebrity um, commentary, um, and the best example of that is someone like Tom Brady. You know, I'm I'm norm, uh, originally from New England, so I bleed Patriot blue, <laughs> um, go Pats, um, but. He is like 45 years old and people will say, how is he, how did he play so long? How come he's still so good? And he does these, you know, these ridiculous exercises and eats this ridiculous diet. And he's held up as this beautiful anecdote. And we know there's good evidence that tells us that testimonials and anecdotes can be very persuasive, especially when they're a celebrity, some, someone you're going to remember. So it's a combination of the availability bias and then the power of anecdote and testimonials that that holds sway and, and then of course the other thing is just often they speak to your values right that you can relate to this individual um we saw that i think a little bit with aaron Rodgers. you know he started talking you know anti-vax rhetoric and if you were anti-vax all of a sudden you had this voice this famous voice that was sort of echoing your beliefs and then it takes on it takes on more power but let me if, if i can brad i think this is a really important question <clears throat> So I want to give you one really powerful example, and that's the Jolie effect. You, uh, you must be familiar with the Jolie effect. So I am not Angela uh, Angelina oh, Jolie. Oh, Angelina Jolie. Yes. Yeah, Angelina okay, now I know Jolie. The jo yeah, she. I think it was 2013 and 2015. Writes two op eds for the New York Times about her decision to get genetic testing and have a prophylactic mastectomy. They were thoughtful, Brad. They were thoughtful op eds. Um, they weren't sensationalistic, uh, really just talking about her experience and her decision. As a result of those two op-eds, the number of genetic tests, you know, for BRCA1 and BRCA2 <clears throat> goes up and the number of prophylactic surgeries go up. Uh, we can have a really interesting discussion about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but that highlights how endorsement by a celebrity can have an impact on on a pretty, pretty big decision, a pretty consequential oh, yeah. decision, right? And there's many, many, many other examples, but that's, I think, a powerful one. So you said the power of the anecdote, right? That's, is that something that we could then turn on its head to use to our advantage when we're talking to people about information versus misinformation? I mean, is that the type of thing we want to cover? Or if not, is there something else that misinformation or a way in which misinformation spreads that we can turn around 
to our advantage? Yes, to all of the above. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I, I really do think that we need to use all of the tools that are used to spread misinformation in order to spread the good stuff, right? Uh, creativity wins, I always like to say. <clears throat> and again, we have good evidence, our emerging body of evidence to, to support that. But I think we really need to be careful here um, in that we're not using fire to fight fire. What we're doing is using an anecdote, a story, a, a narrative in order to get across the, the science, the, the body of evidence that, that is supportive of whatever point we want to make, whether it's vaccines work or, you know, wash your hands, you know, use, use an anecdote, use a story, use humor in order to get across that, that, that point. Um, we absolutely, you know, I think it's really important to do that. The other thing that we want to do is we want to make sure that we have shareable content, content that's easy to share on, on social media. One of my favorite examples of it is it was around the ivermectin uh, debate. The FDA uh, put out a tweet that said, you're not a horse, you're not a cow, seriously, y'all, stop it. And this came from the FDA, right? And some people were critical of the FDA for doing that, saying it's a little bit glib and should you know, a science-based inst institution like the FDA really be doing that? I, I think we have to. You know, I, I, I like seeing entities like the FDA step into the social media uh, universe in a way with, with content that is shareable. It's scientifically accurate uh, and it's shareable content. Uh, not everyone liked it. Joe Rogan didn't like it, for example. Right, it doesn't agree with it. That's like when you say uh, celebrities shouldn't be talking about science. They shouldn't be talking about politics, but people only say that when they disagree with that particular celebrity. And there's actually precedent for that, uh, for, for what the, uh, the FDA did, because a few years ago, the CDC put out something about preparing for a zombie apocalypse. This is right. what you need to prepare for the zombie apocalypse. And it was basically what you need to prepare for any type of natural disaster. Uh, it was the same thing, right? Like you want to make clean water supply and, you know, a number of other things. So, so they were just, and that was when the walking dead was super big. So the, like getting out there and using humor, it's, it's, it's their responsibility. I think like they, there are all these other celebrities on social media that have people like, Oh, What's the sliced meat person on uh, Steakum? The yes. Steakum Twitter account is amazing. And he's like, oh, it's got to be like a philosophy PhD or something because super clever and all like on point to sell sliced meat. So if the government had someone like that to be able to spread information, that I mean, that'd be so powerful. Uh, I I totally agree with you. And and who would have ever guessed that that we'd have this science-informed feed coming from this from this source, right? But uh, uh, you're right. And I, I always say that what we need to do is use these pop culture moments as an opportunity to talk about the science. And I often try to do that. Like I'll 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 use you know, something that a celebrity said in or as, as an opportunity to talk about the real. Uh, real science. Uh, I, I do try to keep my content positive. Um, you know, try not to. It, it, I try not to point the finger at consumers and and people that are just looking for answers. But if you are a celebrity, if you're you know Aaron Rodgers, if you're Gwyneth Paltrow, <laughs> if you're Tom Brady, I don't think you need to you know to keep the gloves on, right? I mean, I, I think 
you're, these people are making tens of millions of dollars based on their brand and they're using their brand to sell bunk. So let's, you know, you can use these as sort of pop culture moments to talk about what the science actually says on a topic and, and you can have fun with it. You can have, I, I think it's absolutely fair to have fun with it. You know, I always, you know, I have a lot of colleagues that use a little bit of snark, right? Uh, I think you got to use that carefully. But uh, if you're trying to create uh, a little bit of momentum around the idea, I think it can be used uh, used well. I, I, a while ago, I had Scott Dickers on the podcast, who was one of the founders of The Onion. And his rule for humor is humor is meant to, um, oh man, it's escaping me now, but um, comfort the the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So that applies exactly to that what you said. Sounds like my rule. <laughs> the celebrities are comfortable, so it's okay to af afflict them. You just need to comfort the afflicted and you can afflict the comfortable and it's you'll you'll be in a safe place as long as you look at that before you go, you know, making fun of someone's actions or beliefs. Yeah, I just today I was making fun of Aaron Rodgers. That's why he's top of mind for me because I don't know if you saw the headline. He he was taking, you know, psychedelics in order to you know, get more focus. And that's why he got, you know, the MVP. And he talked about how he merged with the ocean and all this kind of stuff. Oh, and, yeah, it was the ayahuasca. Yeah, definitely. that's exactly right. And and some of his followers, you know, how dare you make fun of someone who's with struggling with mental health issues, and he's looking for answers, you know, look, Aaron Rodgers, you know, that he is, uh, what, what does he make, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, that's not what the point is here. Um, and so yeah, if you, you can, do it carefully. I think it, it can really help the the public discourse. So, what about when we're we're talking to our patients about information versus misinformation? Right? They've 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 got this idea that they read about, and it seems so appealing to them. Right? What I say is, candy is always going to be more appealing than broccoli, and it seems like they've got a, a Snickers in their hand, <laughs> and we've got broccoli and we have to convince them that they should be eating more broccoli which is in fact the case we are trying every day to get our patients to eat more more actual broccoli but in in a larger context you know how do we how do we fight that fight it just seems like such a and i'm going to have a lot of trouble saying this word sisyphean feat to uh, <laughs> to overcome that on an individual basis and in in the public sphere it, it it really feels that way. And, and you know, when I, I give public lectures on this, you know, I always hear people say, is there any point to even fighting this? Because it seems futile. It just seems, exactly. you know, like the holding back the tide kind of kind of vibe. And um, I, I always try to, I'm an optimist. I, you know, I, I really think that we can make a difference. Certainly on the physician patient level, you can, uh, you can make a difference. I, I absolutely, I, I think that's, that's the case. Uh, but also on a social level, there is a growing body of evidence that tells us that um, battling bunk works, like that you really can make a difference. And I think it doesn't feel like it because there just is so much misinformation out there. But, you know, think about what it would be like if we didn't fight the misinformation. It'd be even worse, right? It would be even worse. So, you know, I think we need to to recognize recognize that. And the other thing I, I think it's important to note is there are examples of of success, and I'm going to use my own country of Canada. Uh, the numbers are 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 echoed in the United States, unfortunately not as as uh, as strongly, but but the trend is there. You know, in the halfway through the pandemic, about half of Canada 
was skeptical of vaccines. You know, the vaccines hadn't arrived yet, um, but you know, you're look, you were looking at a hesitancy rate, you know, 45%, 50%, depending on what survey that you, you looked at. As soon as they come out, you know, that it, it, it improves, uh, but now we're looking at in Canada, over 90% of our country has got at least one vaccine. And, and you know, the hardcore deniers are, are, they're there and they're loud and they're still making a difference. I think they're having, an, unfortunately, an impact on the booster uptake. But we saw this uptake uh, and this change. And I think that's often forgotten. The same thing happened with masks. You know, we, everyone talks about the, the mask debate, but, you know, you, you deal with patients. We went from zero mask wearing, zero mask wearing to two years later in Canada it was like oh, almost 90%, it was over 80%. That behavior change like that almost never happens, right? And so I think we have to remember that was because of good science communication. That was because of good debunking. That was a big part, part of the story. And we also have empirical evidence that tells us that, you know, getting on social media, countering the misinformation really can make a difference. So yeah, get out there and fight the good fight. Is there any misinformation out there that you've heard perpetuated by physicians? Not like fringe physicians, like, you know, the great Barrington declaration, right? But, but maybe either your own personal physician or one of your family members, um, they, have they ever said anything to you that you knew to be misinformation and, and how did you react? Wow, that's a great question. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> the answer is yes. And hopefully, they're not going to listen. I won't use any names. I've heard. I've. I bet you've heard this too from colleagues. Uh, supplements uh, around things like vitamin D and um, and look. Yeah, certainly, there was interesting research going on based on observ observational studies that really didn't pan out in clinical trials around vitamin D. But I heard, you know, I definitely heard some people talk about it in very definitive language. And I think that's often the difference, right? It's not, it's not, well, there's interesting research going on here. It's doubtful. It's harmful. It, uncertain whether it'll be beneficial. That's not the kind of language that you were hearing. You're hearing that this is one of the things that you need to do to battle. And that, that's misinformation. And one of the reasons that, that goes back to that magical thinking problem, one of the reasons I also don't like that is it also helps the, the alternative medicine industry, right? Because now all of a sudden supplements broadly, the broad umbrella of supplements now seems more legit, more plausible because we were kind of endorsing this one in a, in a not very scientifically robust way. So I heard that one a lot. I don't know if you heard that. And then I also heard, um, you know, some of the mask uh, misinformation, you know, emanating from, from colleagues. And, and I think part of it is we're all to blame in how we talk about scientific uncertainty. I don't think we have to get better at that because I'm not saying a lot of these things can't be discussed, but I think we have to do a better job reflecting the scientific uncertainty and the, and the, the, the nature of that scientific evolution, right? That, that it, we know is going to happen. It's always going to happen. And, and I think that we all did a, a bad, we've gotten better, I think, but we, especially early days, we're, didn't do a great job talking about that sign or, or respecting that scientific uncertainty in the public sphere. I think that scientific uncertainty is some of the problem. Because when you're talking about someone spreading misinformation, they're saying it with such great conviction, yeah. right? It's definitely going to help. You're going to feel better. You're going to lose that weight. You're going to look better. You're going to look your honor. You're going to, you're going to. When you see me, Dr. Block, are these antibiotics going to make my sinus go, sinus infection go away? Is this surgery going to work? Well, how do you define work? 
you know, this is what the surgery might do. This is what it might not do. This is like, there's, you know, most people feel this way, but I can't guarantee anything. You know, how am I, the way I sell something, which is I'm not clearly not selling, I'm advising versus, you know, the supplement industry as an example, they say things with such great invention. Yeah. Um, whereas us, we have to talk about uncertainty. So how do we fight that fight? Right. So on top of broccoli versus candy, it's certainty versus uncertainty. So how do we sell information coming from the land of uncertainty? Ever the optimist, I think we can do it. I think we can do it. And I think how some people talked about ivermectin is a really good example of that. You know, you had these, you know, these fringe doctors saying ivermectin work, it's a miracle drug, it cures all these things, very definitive language. And then some of the more thoughtful ones pushing against it, they were almost too careful. They would say, well, we don't have good evidence about whether it works or doesn't work. The evidence base is very uncertain. You know, I, I think that we can reflect that scientific uncertainty in a way that is still, you can still engage with it, right? You can say, look, the body of evidence that we have right now suggests that it doesn't work. And that's not twisting the evidence. That's what, that's where the evidence takes us. And I think we need to be a little bit more, I, I lean hard on that concept of the body of evidence, because I think it actually can do a lot of work, especially when you're talking about, you know, complex phenomenon. And, and I think we need, it, leaning on that those kinds of concepts, I think we can have language that is more actionable than, than we have in the past and still respect the scientific uncertainty. Okay, okay. So maybe that even gets us more credibility. Yeah, I, I think it can. and 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 look, not every MD, not every researcher wants to be out in the public's public sphere. But I, but I think that the uh, one of the good news stories of the pandemic is we have seen more and more clinicians, researchers, scientists get on TikTok and on Instagram and on Twitter and and you know in your local news and writing op eds and they've been unreal, right? You know, there seems some really entertaining TikTok um, uh, clinicians. Uh, and I don't think I'm it's still not there. It was a leap to get on Instagram. Like I had, my wife had to help me get on my, uh, had to get, help me get on Twitter. I get right. Words were saying things to each other. Instagram was a leak, a leap now, but now I have to like do a dance and pointed boxes. Like, ah, man, I just can't. I can't. I'm with you. I, I can't, I can't. I, and I think, I think there's almost like an age limit on TikTok, isn't there? Like, I, I think I'm not, it probably won't even open up for me. You know, I'm Gen X. Some... I think, yeah, I won't take my thumbprint. Yeah. yeah. So how do we immunize, immunize ourselves against misinformation? And for me, for me, my question really is for me, because this podcast is really all about me and the questions I have for people. Um, like if, as I'm inviting people on to be a guest, how do I make sure that they're, I'm not giving a, a platform to some fringe thinker, right? Because they might have some ideas. And that's the whole idea with misinformation. There's like elements of truthiness to, to it, but it's just not true. So how do I, and actually to go back to another Star Wars reference, right? Yoda and Luke, how do I know the good side from the bad? Uh, it, it's a great question. And it's actually, I think, a really complex one because, um, you know, believe it or not, I, I'm not a big fan of the idea of totally deplatforming. I think that that should be like a tool of last resort. So there are going to be situations where you're going to have people on that maybe have fringe, fringe views. Um, but the key is to hold their feet to the fire. 
you know, and because Joe Rogan, for example, defended himself saying, oh, there are all these different views. I'm just asking questions, jacking off, right? Just asking questions. That's not what he was doing, right? Yeah, he was Tucker like- Carlson says too. So he's, yeah. in, he's in great company there. And he's cheerleading. They're cheerleading these ideas, right? That is very, very, very different than bringing, you know, Peter McCullough on and say, look, here's the body of evidence on this topic. You know, the study that you're referring to has been retracted. It's a single study. It was done poorly. You don't have any of that, right? It's just this cheerleading going on. So I think you can ha- you can talk about fringe views in a way that isn't going to necessarily um, legitimize those views and sort of feed false balance. And I think that that's what is always the danger. So you always want to use a weight of evidence approach, right? A weight of evidence approach. And there's again, evidence in the, even in the context of vaccine, uh, a vaccine hesitancy that, you know, being exposed to false balance really does harm and being exposed to um, a commentary that is built on the weight of evidence can have, can be very constructive. Um, and so I think that that's what you want to do. You want to lean on that sort of weight of evidence approach, whether you're talking about having this individual on or whether you're talking about selecting a guest or even just talking about a topic. And I, I think that that's the approach that that more journalists need to adopt also. Yeah, rather than just, I'm going to let both sides have their day. Okay, but in numbers, like you said, weighted evidence, that means we're going to have one climate denier and uh, 1,100 scientists talking <laughs> about, and so they'll get, you know, comparable to their to the weight of the evidence. We, we actually did a study on, on false balance in the context of the Great Barrington Declaration. We uh, published it earlier this year, and it was pretty bad in the pot, you know, the popular press in general, the sort of the mainstream media, the legacy media, we're actually pretty good in the context of COVID. You know, we've we've been we've been studying this for uh, throughout the entire pandemic. Not ideal. Lots of examples of problems, but in general, right? Uh, it was pretty solid. Uh, and and by the way, there's a correlation between getting your information from the legacy media and not believing misinformation, and getting your information from alternate sources and believing misinformation. So you have a lot of different ways you can look at that. At that question, but we definitely found false balance in the context of this, you know, natural herd immunity approach to dealing with, with the pandemic. And, and in that piece, we speculated that that had, did have an impact on both policy and public perceptions of, of the evidence-based public health measures that were being deployed to fight the pandemic. Oh yeah, so many. I heard from so many people that like, okay, this is it. We're almost there. We're almost there. Herd yeah. immunity. Uh, even though in the history of mankind, we've never gotten herd immunity to anything except through immunization. Um, so so you said deplatforming. Uh, you know, there's someone out there that really needs to be deplatformed, I, I think, um, who's currently running for Senate. So I don't think he has a show anymore. <laughs> um, but let's say hypothetical situation. If you were invited, would you have gone on the Dr. Oz show? So it's a great question, uh, and I have thought about it. Um, it's it's tough. It's a, it's a, one of those on the one hand and, and on the other hand. So on the one hand, um, it, it's an audience that you want to speak to. It's an audience that you want to have the opportunity to um, express a science-informed 
opinion on a topic. So if he, you know, let's say, you know, he's, he's endorsed homeopathy and could you go on and actually debunk homeopathy? On the other hand, um, are you legitimizing him? Are you legitimizing the other messages that he, he puts forward? Um, are you kind of uh, giving him a pass on all the harm that he's done in the past? And in the aggregate, I, I lean to that. You know, I, I think that it'd be hard. I thought about this in the context of Joe Rogan, for example, and the, and uh, uh, but with Dr. Oz in particular, I think he's done so much harm and, and continues to do harm. I think the answer would probably be no. But it's not a, it's not always an easy, you know, it's not always a straightforward uh, answer. What, let me give you one example from the past. I, I recently wrote a series of articles for Men's Health magazine on on misinformation. Um, and, uh, I was very proud of those articles, by the way, and, 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 and the editors were amazing, amazing. They really were. They, the way, the way they fact-checked it and, and the way they edited it, but I did have some colleagues say, you know, that publication isn't always evidence-based, you know, think about what the diets they've pushed and the exercise they've, they've, but what an important audience to reach, right? So, uh, you know, where you have, you know, this male audience that, perhaps has a very particular point of view. And I think it's a real opportunity. So yeah, I, I think you've got to weigh those, those questions. As, and and, and that, that weighing is getting more and more complicated all the time. And to me, that's a sign of a, of a good person who's doing the right thing, right? You're grappling with it. You're grappling with it. Like, is this the right thing? Is, and again, it's like the uncertainty. If you're dealing with uncertainty, you're probably on the right path. If you're dealing with certainty, you're probably not. And so if you're not sure and you're, you know, that to me is, is the sign of a healthy um, relationship with what you're doing because it's, it's often not clear. It's, it's often not clear. Um, and you had, you had mentioned um, like a magazine like that, right? It, it also, it's for profit. Like those journal, the, the like legacy, the legacy media, they thrive on advertising, right? And so they're going to need to cover these topics that are going to get more clicks yeah. and more 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 people that are viewing their stuff because they need to stay in business. So it's this conflict between covering things that are important and covering things that are popular. And they really, they kind of have to do both. Otherwise, you're just going to have trash out there only covering what's popular because everybody else is under underwater. Which brings yeah, us I to the next question. That that I was I was hoping to ask, and that's the difference between conflict of interest and conspiracy, right? Because those the legacy media clearly there's a conflict of interest because because they're not publicly funded, they're privately funded, so they have to they have to appease their advertisers. So there's a conflict of interest, but that's not the same as conspiracy. It's not, but I think it's important to recognize that, uh, and this is why you know talking about conspiracies and misinformation can all, often get complicated. You know. <clears throat> You know, Watergate was a conspiracy. <laughs> that really was a conspiracy, and, and so you have these, you know, these real conspiracies that played out, um, and people point to them. Um, but the reality is, um, you know, they they generally are uncovered, and they're relatively rare. Uh, another example, of course, is Big Pharma. Big Pharma, they have been bad actors in the past, right? So if you're suspicious of vaccines, and you say, "Well, look what they did with Vioxx," or "Look what you know." Uh, they have been bad actors uh, in the past. Um, and, and we always have to remember that. In fact, uh, we at our institute, we actually do research on um, the role of academics uh, working with industry 
and the impact that has on public trust and the impact that has on, on, on the nature of the scientific inquiry. Um, and it's generally bad, <laughs> you know, it's, it's generally bad. You know, if, if industry is involved, the public trusts the research less. Literally, you know, literally they know that, you know, research is throughout the biomedical infrastructure. But so these are really important questions. And I think, you know, transparency is obviously one of the things that is absolutely essential. But the other thing I think is essential in the vaccine debate is a good example of this is to highlight, again, I'm using this phrase, the body of evidence that is out there, right? Just because it, industry did it, yes, we should recognize that industry did the research. We should recognize the the fact that that could have an impact on the way the research was undertaken and the outcome. But look, there was also this study that was funded by the public, uh, by a public entity, you know, without any industry funding, same conclusion. Um, we should weigh all of those factors when we're looking at the body of evidence. And, and good entities like the Cochrane Collaboration, they do that, right? They, they try to consider the, the conflicts of interest that are relevant uh, to the conclusions that are, that are out there. And, and I think we need to do more we need to do more of that. The last thing I say, I'm going on too long on this point, Brad, but it's a really important point. That, that's, a, I think, something else that I hope is a legacy of the pandemic, is a greater appreciation of how important trustworthy science is, right? You know, this science that the public can really trust. And, um, and we need to create incentive structures and funding structure, structures and, uh, and, and also the ability for the, the public to see how the science happens so they can trust it. I think we need more and more of that. So we're going to be wrapping up soon. And, and, and this is a bit of a non sequitur, but I, I just have to ask it before we, before we wrap, wrap up, because you met with Gwyneth's doctor, right? I don't think we need to refer to her last name because everyone no. knows, who Gwyneth, <laughs> right? You met Gwyneth's doctor. First, how did Knowing who you are and what you do, this physician agreed to that meeting. And two, what was that like? Uh, it was really funny. I was surprised he agreed to meet with me. Um, and it, it is a very, it's a funny story because I met him in Hollywood. It was like, it, it played out exactly like you would probably imagine if you were like doing a script. It's, it played out exactly like you thought it would play out. Um, you know, I met his office manager first and, you know, I won't use any names. Uh, and I went to this beautiful uh, office, mahogany, big yeah. windows, exactly yeah, right. And, you know, I, I think he offered me a smoothie, and <laughs> um, and while we're talking, he's telling me that I have adrenal fatigue and I need to go on this this cleanse in order to reset Before, my wait, system. Did he see you as a patient? He's giving me advice, you know. I think Just, he's giving... so he can see that from the look from from your from your yeah. youthful glow that <laughs> so... you have adrenal fatigue. Well, that's nice. Um, yeah, I, which isn't her thing, as everyone it's probably so nice knows. To, it's so nice to meet you. You have adrenal fatigue. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and I actually did do the cleanse, by the way, which I had no coffee for three weeks. It almost killed me. But <laughs> but what was really funny was as I'm talking to him and as he's going on about all of his, his theories, I could see his office manager fellow uh, Googling me. Right. And I could see the expression change. And once they realized who I am, I'm ushered out in the in the and the uh, interview is abruptly started. I actually talk about this in, in my one of my books, so it's not a, a big secret, but it was interesting to see. Right. This is an individual who's trying to build a brand. He's trying to create a narrative that is attractive to individuals. Uh, and that's what the, the whole it was became apparent to me very quickly that that's what was going on. Oh, and they they. 
I'm sure, believe everything that they say. I, I don't think, you, you, no, you don't think so? <laughs> so I, I go back and forth on that, Brad. Like, um, I, I think that's a very interesting uh, question. You know, I, I, the short answer is I think they probably do believe it, you know, so they can sleep at night. You know, there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance going on, you know. Um, but with someone like Gwyneth, I kind of go back and forth. Is it, you know, just cynical profit making? I, I, I think it's a, a complex mixture of all the above. Or Dr. Oz's hopium, right? I want to give people like something to start them on the right path. And actually my my wife, who gives me permission to, to talk about her on the podcast, she, knowing how I feel about all this stuff, I see on on our, our, our garbage area, which is where, you know, when you walk in the door, you put everything on, on there is a goop cleanse. I'm like, oh, first of all, I've you know, done I it. About I've cleanses. done it. <laughs> and, say, yeah. and you look great. You look great. It must have gotten rid of that adrenal fatigue. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So it was just I, like, I, you know, the funny the thing night. is I lost a whole bunch of weight, you know, um, and uh, and so you attribute that to the cleanse. And then and then, of course, immediately all came back on, like as soon as I stopped. Right. So that's my yeah. fault, Brad. I didn't have the strength. Right. So the the cleanse worked and then my fragile constitution failed. <laughs> so and and on the circle goes. But that you bring up an excellent point. And, and actually, we've talked about this the type of thing on on previous podcasts. So if you do have a patient who experiences, you know, they went on a cleanse and now they're all discouraged, I think it's important to highlight the fact that they're thinking this. They're thinking, I'm a failure. There's something wrong with me. I don't have the strength. How come someone else, everyone else can do it and I can't? And you have to bring that up with them and highlight to them how incorrect that way of thinking is and, and you know, try and get them somehow to, to put a positive spin on things. And I think that's where we as individual physicians in these places, you know, re, you re, re in their, earn their trust and, and you can get them on a, a better, healthier path where they're not wasting their money on goop, which is just expensive goop. Appropriately uh, absolutely. Named. Absolutely. So where can people find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, Caulfield Tim. I'm on Instagram, Caulfield Tim, and uh, you can you know Google and find some of the stuff I've I've written about. Um, and uh, I'd love to hear people's comments on on all the all the things that we've talked about, Brad. Well, I've been really looking forward to this for a long time, and you did not disappoint. Such a great interview, and thank you for all the important work that you do. I I, I really appreciate it. The listeners appreciate it, and uh, thank you. Th thanks very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to this incredibly important audience. And I'll, I'll end with my two favorite words, go science. Hashtag go science. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.